Okay, Emiliano, you're good to go. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Rehumanized podcast. Uh, we're very excited for our guest today, James Yee. Um, I'm Emiliano, and we've got Herb with us. And James, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and talk about your perspective on the consistent life ethic and and issues of, of torture? Uh, yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, first of all, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, my name is James Yi. I'm the former U.S. Army Muslim chaplain who served down in Guantanamo Bay very shortly after 9-11. So this is like 20 years ago. I served in Guantanamo uh, in late uh, 2002 through most of 2003. Uh, and I worked closely with the hundreds of prisoners who were held there at, at the time. And that is like nobody hears anything from anybody who actually has participated in or been to Guantanamo Bay. Like Guantanamo Bay is just in the collective imagination, I feel just this black hole where, you know, people have their political opinions about it, but nobody really hears from the people who have actually experienced what it looks like on the inside, whether uh, prisoners or support people like you or, or uh, guards or anything else. So what can you tell us about, about Guantanamo Bay as uh, we are commemorating now this year, 20 years since it's been opened? Right. Uh, um, yeah, there were, there are very few people who you might call insiders, people who actually worked at the prison camp, uh, who have publicly uh, talked about their experiences and what they know and what they've seen and, and what actually has gone on in Guantanamo. Very few people like myself or people who might have worked as translators uh, in the prison camp uh, for the Joint Task Force military operation, prison camp operation, uh, or, or other military personnel uh, very few have actually openly later talked about their experiences at Guantanamo. Um, how, however, uh, when I served at Guantanamo, there were close to 660 or so prisoners who were held there at the time. Today, there are still 37 prisoners remaining. Uh, so that means <clears throat> hundreds have been released under the Bush administration, the Obama administration, uh, President Trump actually did release one prisoner, and Biden has already released three prisoners. Uh, and out of those prisoners, there have been several who have who have uh, talked about being prisoners at Guantanamo, have written books, and uh, there, those books are available, uh, several of them online, uh, as, as well as many of the legal experts, many of the attorneys who represented prisoners in Guantanamo, have written uh, books and authored articles and pieces and done interviews about about what they've seen and what they've experienced in Guantanamo. But again, from the insider perspective, those who actually work with the military or work with some of the intelligence agencies down in Guantanamo, there are very few who have actually spoken spoken publicly. And how did how did you end up getting? on the path to being a chaplain at Guantanamo um, that, and a Muslim chaplain as well. Um, how, how did you make that journey from, where, where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in Illinois, but I was Ooh. raised in, in New it's Jersey. <laughs> uh, Naperville, Illinois, Naperville, Illinois. Okay, uh, cool. suburbs, suburbs of the Chicago area is where I was born. But at the age of two, my father, who was uh, an engineer for AT&T, was, was, was uh, transferred to uh, New Jersey. So we all moved to New Jersey. And at the age of two, I, I basically then started to grow up, went to kindergarten, elementary school, high school in, in New Jersey. And as a, a standout wrestler in high school, I was able to use that athletic talent and get myself into West Point. So I went through West Point, graduated in 1990. And shortly after I graduated from the United States Military Academy, I converted to Islam. 
And so this was right, uh, right before the, the first Gulf War. I converted to Islam in 1991, in the, in the spring of 1991, April. And it was very uh, soon after that that I was deployed in the aftermath of the first Gulf as a, as a Patriot Missiles Fire Control Officer to Saudi Arabia. And it was on that deployment to Saudi Arabia that I had the opportunity to actually make a short pilgrimage to Mecca and ho hosted by the Religious Affairs Department in the, in the Saudi Royal Air Force. They hosted a trip for any American Muslim service members who were serving in the theater and, and gave them that opportunity to, to go to Mecca. And I, I, I took that opportunity. I was a very new Muslim convert at the time. Uh, I was a convert uh, uh, to Islam really basically on a very doctrinal level. I accepted the beliefs, the pillars of Islam and the belief in one God. But in my mind, coming from America, I, ha I had never experienced or saw like East Asian Muslims from people of my own ethnicity. I'm, I'm Chinese American. And, uh, you know, growing up in America, the only Muslims that I knew about were African American Muslims who might, many of them who came through the, the nation of Islam during the, during the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, the, the Arab and Southeast Asian Muslim demographic from Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, India, and, and, and then the Arab world. So that was my view of, of Muslims. Uh, and I converted to Islam based on the beliefs, but didn't, didn't actually realize that at the, at, at the time that there were, you know, um, millions of, of, of Asian Muslims around the world. And in fact, I would later learn that, that uh, in Islam, the one country that has the largest population of Muslims is Indonesia. Mm -hmm. uh, they have the largest Muslim population, and they're, and they're an Eastern, Eastern Asian country. And so when I made that short pilgrimage to Mecca, the, the first large group of Muslim pilgrims, pilgrims that I saw going, around, going into the, the, the Holy Mosque were East Asian Muslims who had you know, similar ethnic features like myself. Yeah. And that was, uh, so that was very surprising to me. Yeah, that uh, must but, have been cool though. It, but on that trip, it was to me, I, I, I had that Malcolm X-like type experience where I, I saw in Mecca uh, people from all over the world, from, from, from Russia, from the Arab world, from Asia, uh, I even met some other fellow Americans who were actually visiting Mecca that day when 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 I, when I made that pilgrimage, and so that that whole experience of like true diversity was something that that like overwhelmed me and inspired me. And after four days going back to the the military base in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, where I was I was stationed at the time. I realized that there were actually no Muslim chaplains in the U.S. military at that point. Wow. This is this is 1991, uh, and during the six months or so that I spent in Saudi Arabia, I had also learned that during the time of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, uh, several thousand of U.S. service members converted to Islam. So that so right there, that was an indication that the number of American Muslims within the ranks of our military was quickly growing, wow. and that told me that, of course, that means there should there's a need for Muslim chaplains. And when I started to look for them, I found out there were none. Mm -hmm. And being like literally time, zero, zero, zero at wow. that time in 1991, uh, in 92, there were no Muslim chaplains. There were Jewish chaplains, there were Christian chaplains, Protestant and Catholic, uh, but that's it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I thought about it at that time that, you know, perhaps maybe that was something that I could pursue later in my, in my military career. Uh, I was still a young lieutenant. I was very much entrenched in what I was doing as an air defense artillery officer, but as a new convert to Islam, someone who had uh, begun to now, after that trip to Mecca, started to take my, my faith serious, more seriously, uh, seriously considered, hey, you know, what, what, what has to be done in order for us to bring 
Muslim chaplains into the ranks. And perhaps maybe, I thought maybe one day I could be the first. Uh, in, in 1992, when, when President Clinton got elected, one of the things that he did was he drew down the military. And uh, in a military drawdown, the first thing that happens is uh, they ask for people who'd like to volunteer to be released from their active duty commitments before they have to involuntarily separate. So they ask for volunteers first. I had a five-year commitment after serving three years. I was able to be released early from my five-year active duty commitment. I served three years, had the other two remaining years converted to reserve commitment, and that allowed me to, to leave active duty and then pursue, uh, I would go on and pursue uh, studies in Islam in Syria, in Damascus, Syria. And, and uh, one of my goals was to learn how to recite the Holy Quran in the Arabic language to be able to properly recite the Quran for my prayers and for other rituals of worship. So I ended up going to Syria. I spent uh, about five years, uh, academic years in, in Syria, studying Islam, studying the Arabic language. Uh, I also taught English uh, part-time as a second language while I was there. Um, and then uh, one summer when I was back home on, on, uh, on, on break, from my studies, I had learned that uh, the first Muslim chaplains were commissioned into the U.S. military, and one of the one of the people who actually went on a, a second pilgrimage to Mecca with me while I was in the military was heading up the movement, was heading up the the process of bringing in uh, uh, American military personnel to serve as Muslim chaplains, and he told me. He, he told me, you know, I was gone, you know, he had no, he recognized I had been gone for, for going on five years now, I had done some studies. He wanted to bring me back as a chaplain. So he arranged for my, my studies that I did overseas to be accredited by what had become the, the, the educational uh, resource or institution that was preparing uh, Americans to become Muslim chaplains. Um, the, the regulation stated you had to essentially have a doctorate of divinity from from a seminary, but in the U.S., you know, we don't have we didn't at that time we didn't have Islamic seminaries, so uh, an educational institute was 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 founded, and uh, it was the purpose was to be able to educate and, and produce uh, and get and get people ready, uh, prepared to become Muslim chaplains in the U.S. military, and that institution would would review my work, my studies that I did overseas, give me a letter of equivalency, and that opened the doors for me to come back in as, as a chaplain. And I came back to the United States and in uh, the fall of, of uh, 2000, and I was brought back on active duty as a chaplain in January of 2001. Uh, and that year, 2001, was... was, uh, was uh, very significant as the, the, the tragic attacks on 9-11 happened just nine months after I came back on active duty as a Muslim chaplain. And uh, being that I had uh, uh, graduated from West Point, I had officer experience, I was uh, able to deal with lower enlisted soldiers, yet higher ranking military officers, top brass. Uh, right after 9-11, the Pentagon and the State Department began sending me interview requests to handle media requests uh, mm -hmm. regarding the issues of American Muslims serving in the military in that immediate post 9-11 aftermath. So my name suddenly became recognized in, in, uh, in, in, in the Pentagon, the public affairs departments of the Pentagon, the State Department. And then when we actually did, our country did start dropping bombs in Afghanistan and and our military started taking prisoners, we opened that prison camp, which is now in Guantanamo Bay. And uh, one of the first things they wanted to do was to send uh, one of the Muslim chaplains down there. So in, in late 2001, um, I'd say we had about 12 Muslim chaplains in the military. We had like two in the Navy, two in the Air Force, and a, a little smaller handful in the army, 
but in January of 2001, I was the newest Muslim chaplain. Uh, and, and I was almost a little bit different from those who were already serving as Muslim chaplains because I had already served uh, in the officer ranks and I had already had military experience as, as, as a soldier and as a platoon leader, now chaplain, whereas most of the Muslim chaplains who were now serving in the military were people who were direct commissioned. They were, had no previous military experience. So it was, it was almost natural that after 9-11, they looked, the, the military looked to me to, to, to almost be the face of Muslims who were serving the ranks. And mm. that's how my name got out there. And then when the assignment came for chaplain in Guantanamo, uh, they, they said, you're the one that's going. That's so interesting to have just that path from the beauty of the religious experience that you had in Mecca um, of seeing a, a, a world of, of people of, of the same faith interacting in, in one space um, to going to a place that I mean, what was the what was the, the environment? What was the yeah? What was Guantanamo? The, yeah, what was the demographic environment of the Muslims in in Guantanamo? Because this is also part of a global war on terror that was beginning as well. I imagine that there weren't just Afghani Muslims, but or, or Middle Eastern Muslims. But yeah. So actually, uh, there were a total of I think seven hundred seventy nine total prisoners that have been uh, through Guantanamo. Thirty seven still remaining. Out of those close to 800 prisoners, they represented 42 different nations. The largest group uh, were were from Afghanistan, but you also had uh, uh, several Arab countries that had prisoners in Guantanamo. And actually, if you totaled all the Arab, uh, all the Muslims from the Arab countries, they out uh, they outnumbered the Afghani, the, the prisoners from Afghanistan. But Afghanistan had this had the single largest had the single largest number for one one country, but you had also Muslims from uh, Eastern Europe, from Russia, uh, several of the Soviet bloc countries. You had um, some Muslims from Africa. Uh, you had very few from the East uh, Asian countries like uh, like Indonesia or Malaysia. You might have had one or something like that. There might have been one one who was, I believe, from Malaysia, who was one of the very high value, uh, who was held initially in a secret CIA black site before coming to Guantanamo. Uh, and then you actually had three dozen prisoners who were from Western China, uh, known, uh, known as Uyghurs. So uh, the Uyghur Muslims are ethnic Muslims in Western China, uh, I think they, the western part of China is, the, I think it's north of Tibet. Um, many of the people who are Uyghurs uh, want to be independent of China, but yet they are uh, Chinese citizens by, by pretty much by force. Uh, they'd like to have their own country called East Turkestan. Uh, so there were, there were uh, about three dozen Uyghur Muslims who were picked up and I believe some of them were actually training in some of these militant uh, camps, Muslim camps like in Pakistan. However, they were training so they can go back home and fight China, the government of China, who uh, historically have oppressed the, the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, and actually, the United States, uh, on our, uh, by our foreign policy, support the Uyghur Muslims as a human rights point against the government of China. And uh, so interestingly enough, we had, we had three dozen Uyghur Muslims in Guantanamo, but when, when, when the U.S. government was forced to actually give prisoners rights in Guantanamo and review their status according to the Geneva Conventions, uh, the, those Uyghur Muslims, all three dozen of them, were the first ones to be uh, uh, categorized as uh, they called them uh, NEC, not enemy combatants. The term that was given to prisoners in Guantanamo by the Bush administration was enemy combatant, you know, uh, not prisoners of war. We called them enemy combatants. Uh, 
but when we were forced to give status, official statuses to prisoners at Guantanamo, immediately the Uyghur Muslims uh, from Western China were given the status not enemy combatants. And then uh, they even had a court process where uh, lawyers represented them. And at one point, there was even a judge in Washington, a federal judge in Washington, D.C., who ordered the release of the Uyghur Muslims, ordered the military to bring the Uyghur Muslims from Guantanamo to his courtroom in D.C. so that he could release those those Uyghur Muslims into the U.S. society uh, where other Uyghur American citizens had already uh, assured that they could be integrated into into America with jobs, with housing, with with uh, funding and whatnot. Um, and, and so that was a, a very interesting ruling that had taken place. But you know, the Bush administration would, of course, would appeal that and overturn that decision. The Uyghur Muslims stayed several more years, uh, but eventually they they were they, they were released. But um, again, it was that whole idea that. They, they weren't even considered enemies of the United States, yet they were held so long in, in Guantanamo. Yeah. And you've mentioned this diversity among the detainees at Guantanamo. Uh, but to be clear for our listeners, I, I don't think that everyone knows this if, if they don't follow this closely. I think a lot of people have forgotten about Guantanamo. Um, but just to clarify, every single detainee at Guantanamo, all nearly 800 people have been Muslim men. Right. All, all the prisoners. No, Muslim men and boys, because there have been and, several. Right. Uh, yeah, correct. Um, every, every prisoner at Guantanamo has, has, has been Muslim. I, I actually, I actually met one prisoner. Um, there, there was, there was, uh, some question as whether he was actually Muslim or not. And he, he told, he actually told other people that he was Christian. Uh, but when I talked to him, I asked him, you know, like, like uh, how many times a day do you pray? And it's like five. Uh, <laughs> I think his mother was Catholic and his father was Muslim. So he mm -hmm. had both both of those religious uh, identities that he that he held on to. Because um, I remember at one point he had he had requested to see the Catholic chaplain. So then all of a sudden there was this, this, this idea around camp that, oh, there's a, there's a one, one of the prisoners is Christian or he might have converted and, and started mm -hmm. causing some controversy, but uh, but yeah, by and large, every prisoner in Guantanamo is What was your reaction to uh, seeing the conditions at Guantanamo? Uh, can you uh, give us a little bit of a, a picture of you know what reality in the the camps were like? Because I think even when it was a a hot topic to discuss, now it's just completely forgotten about mostly. But even when it was a hot topic to discuss. There was either a downplaying of the uh, conditions of the prison or there was kind of a justification. Well, if it's bad, these are bad people and they deserve to live badly. So what did yeah. it look like inside? Yeah. First, first, let's talk about um, uh, before we get there, uh, let's talk about why Guantanamo has essentially today been forgotten. Uh I actually started to experience people losing any real interest in the issue after President Obama got elected. Uh, President Obama, he, you know, at, uh, he advocated for the closure of Guantanamo. He campaigned on the issue. He promised uh, to ban torture. He promised to scrap the military commissions, the, the war crimes tribunals process that were taking place in Guantanamo. And uh, I myself, actually, that at that time in, in 2008, when he was campaigning, I thought, you know, who better to do this job than a constitutional law expert uh, from Harvard uh, and someone who taught constitutional law, you know, at one of the, you know, uh, premier educational institutes in, in Chicago uh, to, to do this, to take on that task to close Guantanamo. And I actually supported Obama in his run up to becoming president. I was actually a national delegate from Washington state. Uh, if you recall, he had that contentious uh, primary uh, race against Hillary Clinton that year in which he got, he was the first uh, African-American to get the, the, the primary uh, vote to become the, the, the primary, the candidate for the democratic party. Uh, I was one of those delegates who was in his, you know, in his campaign. 
Uh, and I had the honor also of attending the, the inauguration in Washington, D.C. after he got elected. And not even two days uh, uh, after his election, it might, have been, it might have even been the following day, but I hadn't even left Washington, D.C. yet, and there was President now, President Obama, signing an executive order to close Guantanamo within one year. Yep. Right. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was traveling all over the country. Uh, I've traveled to several countries around the world, speaking about Guantanamo and my experience, uh, talking about human rights right? and, and what actually uh, goes on in Guantanamo, the abuse of prisoners and torture and whatnot. So I was, I was full-time a public speaker during, during those years, to, to, to 2006 to 2009. But once Obama got elected, that interest in hearing about Guantanamo dried up. And uh, soon after, uh, you didn't hear much about Guantanamo at all. Uh, and e e even today, I come across people who say, oh, you know, Guantanamo, didn't, didn't Obama close that place? Yep. Right. That's what I was going to say. I, several years ago, we had a, a speaker at a Rehumanized conference speaking about the issue of Guantanamo. And one of our attendees, someone who you know is invested in peace and life issues, so you would think that they would they'd at least be up to date. They saw that on the schedule and they asked me, why are you still talking about Guantanamo? Isn't that closed? Right. What? Why are you bringing this up? Why are we still talking about Guantanamo? As if, even if it was closed, this isn't something that we should right. talk about and remember to ensure that these horrors never happen again to any other human beings. Um, but the the national media, at least, has completely forgotten this issue, and both political parties have no interest in in actually keeping their promise when it comes to the Democrats to close Guantanamo. Uh, I, I actually think that... Uh President Obama failed and that uh, definitely broke the promise and failed in regards to the issue of Guantanamo. But as a politician, I've always uh, analyzed uh, analyzed it in this way that he he bartered, that he traded off the issue of Guantanamo to do other things like uh, the economy was big, at, you know, in his first in his first uh, his first term, um, the health care issue, um, civil rights for the LGBTQ communities, things like that. And you know, traded off Guantanamo, put that on the back burner so that he can get other things accomplished. Um, but today, you know, the, the issue falls in President Biden's lap and President Biden was Obama's vice president. So, you know, it's 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 in his court now. Uh, but going back to the the other the other issues that we were going to talk about, um, what, what were my you know initial impressions, uh, impressions going, you know, when I first got down to Guantanamo? Uh, first of the prisoners and then of the conditions. Uh, I didn't know what to expect when going down to Guantanamo. I mean, I was I was told like every other military service member that goes down to Guantanamo that, the, that these were uh, the worst terrorists, that these were the people who were in some way behind uh, what happened on 9-11, that they were responsible for the terrorist attacks. That they were um, in the media, you know, state state uh, government officials said that these were the, the worst of the worst um i recall reading an article uh, how one one official stated that uh that uh, that the these men in guantana were so dangerous that uh they feared that in the transport in the planes to guantanamo that they they, they might uh chew through the hydraulic lines to bring the planes down that that's how dangerous these guys were i mean i remember reading something like that so, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. I did know before going down to Guantanamo, there were some serious issues about uh, about the people who were down in Guantanamo understanding properly uh, Islam and Muslim cultures and Muslim people, because I, I just saw some of the things in the media that were, were that became problems because people didn't have the proper understanding of, of the Islamic faith or of Muslim culture. And that was something that I thought I could actually uh, contribute right off the bat going down to Guantanamo in that assignment to help ed educate people about Islam and Muslims in order for them to do their jobs better in the detention process and even in the intelligence gathering process. Even though I, I, I vowed to, to keep away from, from anything that dealt with you know, intelligence gathering. Um, but when I got down to Guantanamo, my first day into the cell blocks, uh, I, I did find it very chaotic. 
because they were all of these men were held in these large cell blocks that were uh, had individual cells made of steel mesh, and it it was seemingly like that these these people were being held in like cages. Uh, so it was very chaotic in the cell block. But individually, when I interacted with these people, with these uh, Muslim men, it was it was very clear that that the, these people were were very characteristic of people that I might meet in the Islamic Center down the block when I when I go to the mosque at, at home, right? Uh, people from Afghanistan, people from Pakistan, people from Saudi Arabia, people from the Arab world, people from Indonesia. People, you know, you had that whole ethnic diversity of people who were just seemingly were like common everyday Muslims that I'd find anywhere in any Islamic Center. Uh, and, and, and then as I did more research on my own and learned about what was going on outside of Guantanamo, the secret CIA black sites uh, first uh, reported on by the Washington Post, uh, I, you know, it came clear to me that if, if our government and military had actually captured someone who was seriously suspected of some type of terrorist crime, that they weren't brought to Guantanamo. They were put in the CIA black sites. And so from 9-11, essentially from 9-11 until about 2006, uh, under the Bush administration, we ran the secret CIA black site operation, several CIA black sites where about 19 prisoners were, were held in different locations, were waterboarded, were tortured, way beyond anything that happened in Guantanamo. And those individuals would eventually be brought to Guantanamo uh, in 2006 when, when, uh, when Congress wanted to actually pass legislation, some anti-terrorist legislation on Guantanamo. But we had to show as a nation that we actually had genuine terror suspects at Guantanamo. And that's when they shut down the CIA Black Site Program, which was an operation for, uh, what, six, six, you know, five years um, and, and then they brought those individual, individuals to Guantanamo, and then you had these these, these uh, detainee legislations passed in denying denying rights to prisoners at Guantanamo because they were terrorists. Um, but it was clear to me that when I was there in 2002 and 2003, that the individuals who were at Guantanamo had nothing to do with 9-11. They were, had nothing to do with actual terrorism itself. Um, I, I think the worst that were there at the time were people who, when we invaded Afghanistan as military, may have picked up arms and defended their homes and defended their families and were armed uh, against the U.S. soldiers who were, who were now going door to door and busting into people's homes and stuff like that. Uh, by and large, though, many of the people in Guantanamo were people who were swept up were kidnapped and sold into captivity for for thousands of dollars of bounty money uh, during that time. And I don't know what happened to the vetting process and the intelligence process of who got sent to Guantanamo, but, it, it, you know, by and large, it was pretty much a failure. You had these hundreds of prisoners who really were, by and large, innocent. And, 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 our, and the Bush administration actually knew very early on that most all of these prisoners were, were were innocent. Uh, however, there were decisions made by you know the vice president Dick Cheney, by Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, and, and others uh, made the decision not to release these prisoners, even though they knew they were pretty much innocent, feeling that they could still carry out interrogations and get some type of information from them, uh, as well as uh, keeping them in Guantanamo, or, or, or rather, if they had released them from Guantanamo, it would, it would certainly make the administration look bad, and they didn't, and they didn't want that. But my first impression were, was, you know, these, these guys in Guantanamo weren't terrorists. In terms of the conditions, uh, I had seen the pictures of Camp X-Ray. So in Camp X-Ray, that, that was the first prison facility opened in January of 2002, and, and that was an outdoor-like prison camp uh, where the cells were made of chain link fencing. Uh, in, as part of Guantanamo, as part of the- Guant that was okay. in, in, This was in Guantanamo. So the first facility that the first prisoners were held in were were, were these, these cage-like cells made of chain link fence. And it was very open to the environment. 
Uh, and if you look at pictures of, of, of Camp X-Ray online, uh, it, the, the facility looks like, like, a, like a kennel, like a dog kennel, where you have cage next to cage next to cage where you would have you know, a dog in each one. That's how the prisoners were held there. But by the time I got to Guantanamo, you had these larger cell blocks that were made of stronger steel mess, mesh, much more sturdy uh, than, than the chain link fencing. Uh, and and, and this, each cell block had 48 cells, uh, 24 on each side, a long corridor down the middle, right? And so you had a cl close to uh, 20 of these type cell blocks that could house up to 48 in, in each cell. And uh, it, it was, it, like I said, it was it was pretty chaotic because the prisoners were, you know, always, you know, they could communicate with each other, yelling, screaming, um, you know, 48 people inside this cell block, a uh, lot, lot going on. Um, so the conditions in that sense were, was, 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 uh, uh, was pretty stark, you know, it was like, how, how do you hold someone in a cage, in a cage like, like this? Yeah, I actually, I first got invested in the issue of Guantanamo and, and really learned about it because I'm, I'm only 25. And so I was kind of not aware of most of the war on terror growing up. Um, and so it was only as an adult that I learned about some of these issues. And I actually, um, my first introduction to Guantanamo um, and survivors of Guantanamo um, was through prison abolitionist work. Um, and so that's always been the lens that I have viewed this issue in. And it's only after getting involved in the work that I've realized that it's it's actually more of a foreign policy issue and more of a, you know, it's, it, it's an issue of war as well as an issue of prisons. And I always think that um, looking at Guantanamo and hearing the, the horror stories from what happened in there, it, it is this sort of unique... Um, unique lawless land where um, those detained, their rights are not being respected. But but many of the things you describe also apply to U.S. prisons in the way that we, um, we detain and incarcerate men and women here. Um, of, of course, in Guantanamo, it, it, it's quite different. Um, it, you know, in, in scope, but I, I always think it's interesting the different lenses that you can look at, at this issue with. Uh, sure. They're, they're, um, I'm aware of several of the issues in our federal prison system, especially uh, for those who have been convicted of some type of terrorist crime here in the United States. A lot of them are sent to these um, prisons uh, where they, they're called, they're referred to as CMUs, communication management units, where they're essentially cut off from the world in terms of communication. And even in a sense where their family uh, may go to visit uh, their loved one who's imprisoned in one of these CMUs, uh, they're forbidden from actually talking about their communication publicly, or they could be charged yep. um, because of these policies that they've that they've uh, placed, put in place called uh, SAPs, Special Administrative Procedures. Uh, um, and so even here in the United States, these, these issues are, are very real for, for Muslim prisoners here uh, domestically that have been convicted of, of terrorist crimes. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, no, the most notable is the, is the, the ADX prison in Colorado. Um, but uh, yeah, and and uh, you know, so you, you see the stuff you see the stuff going on not not only in Guantanamo and in, in, in what might be called an offshore prison, but also here in the United States. Yeah, I think the thing that makes Guantanamo just so notable is you know not its uniqueness because we know the same types of human rights abuses happen not just in other CIA black sites or American prisons in the hundreds of military bases and colonies that the U.S. operates all over the world, um, but also in American America's own prison system. Um, and it also integrates like the issue of colonialism and, and imperialism because Guantanamo itself, it, like it's a piece of land. It can operate as uh, a lawless like void of international law because it's 
this piece of land that was stolen from Cuba in 1902 and uh, doesn't it's not American ground. The Cuban government doesn't have any any power there either, despite, you know, repeatedly asking for the territory back for over 60 years now. And so it's just amazing how all of really the failures and the the active violence of the current um, system in the world just all come together in a, a really horrifying way in Guantanamo. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the primary reason why the prison camp was set up in Cuba on American naval base is because the Bush administration thought that by doing so, doing it there, uh, they could avoid federal laws as well as uh, prevent the prisoners from having any rights whatsoever uh, by being there. And then it would, it would only take the Supreme Court to rule otherwise. But even after several rulings in favor of prisoner rights, uh, you know, the system moves so slow that uh, in terms of in trying to enforce and implement those, the, the rights that, they, that the, the courts granted them, you know, have, have taken years and decades. Yeah, and not everyone has lived to see them. We've mentioned many men have been released um, and more likely transferred to prisons in other countries, but released from Guantanamo at least. Um, but several of the detainees have died within the prison. I mean, this is this is a life issue for people who are concerned about human rights and human life um, of of a, an extremely marginalized group in the form of Muslims. Right. So there were not, there have been nine prisoners who have died at Guantanamo. Uh, I think six or seven, uh, six supposedly by suicide uh, is what the official, uh, official cause is on, on, uh, on record. But even one of those particular suicides from a young prisoner who was in his early twenties from Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, where it was alleged that he had, had hung himself, uh, when his body was sent back to his uh, his family in Saudi Arabia, the family came out and said that you know the whole uh, area under under the corpse under the throat area was cut out, so you couldn't really so no other uh, further autopsy could actually uh, disprove that hanging wasn't wasn't the cause of death because the, those those organs were removed were removed from the body. And, and the family believes that you know, that individual prisoner was someone who would have not, would not have committed suicide. Uh, but yeah, nine prisoners have, have died while in captivity at Guantanamo. And we know in the case of, for example, Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning uh, or Edward Snowden, that the U.S. military does not take kindly to people who, you know, talk about their dirty secrets. And uh, even if uh you you hadn't done necessarily anything illegal like was there any uh pushback on you for becoming you're not i don't know would you consider yourself a whistle whistleblower because uh yeah there's various degrees of legality of what was happening there uh just kind of raising to light the the conditions of of the prisoners and how how have you been received, I guess, by the uh, U.S. military? Has there been any, uh, what are the consequences have been for you? Yeah. So when I first got out of the military, uh, uh, after my Guantanamo ordeal, um, and we haven't even talked about my particular ordeal, because, uh, and, and I'll briefly talk about that here. Uh, during my time in Guantanamo, I was raising concerns about prisoner abuse about torture, about mistreatment of prisoners. Uh, not in the sense that I was exposing that to media, yeah. uh, who I interacted with on a weekly basis. I was actually also a spokesperson for uh, the military, uh, representing my position as the Muslim chaplain at Guantanamo, and would meet often with, with media personnel down in Guantanamo. Um, and... Uh, during my time at Gitmo, I raised concerns about how prisoners were being mistreated. And 
uh, that caused uh, some people to put uh, put me under investigation. Some people in the intelligence gathering operation had me under some type of uh, counterintelligence operation uh, investigation in which I was later arrested and jailed myself and put in prison in a super maximum security uh, facility down in Charleston, South Carolina, where they where they were holding what they was termed U.S. citizen enemy combatants. So I was held alongside uh, Jose Padilla, Salah Almari, uh, um, uh, and, and there was one other uh, U.S. citizen enemy combatant. And they put me in that same prison down in Charleston, known as the Consolidated Naval Brig. And I was in solitary confinement for 76 days uh, because you know, they made these accusations that I was a spy, that I was engaged in espionage, that I was aiding the terrorist enemy, mutiny and sedition. So I was potentially facing actually capital crimes, the death penalty. Uh, but when all was said and done, um, you know, uh, most of the truth came out that basically I was just raising concerns about prisoners being abused and tortured at Guantanamo as uh, as as my position as a, as a chaplain uh, dictated. Uh, all the charges would be dropped. I was reinstated, and then I, I would later resign my commission from the U.S. military. But when I got out of the U.S. military in January 2005, I was on no-fly lists. I had issues um, getting boarding passes, getting on planes, being uh, being reinspected in the boarding area, missing flights. Uh, I, I was living in Washington State at the time because I was posted at Fort Lewis in Washington State. Uh, I took one one driving trip up to Canada, uh, and coming back from Canada, uh, I was held at the border. I was held at the border for several hours and feared that I would again be be arrested and detained. Uh, so I had I had I had those types of, of issues when you know when I, when I immediately left the military. Uh, but I, nevertheless, I went on to document my experience at Guantanamo and my my fight for justice, clear my name, authored a book entitled uh, For God and, and Country, Faith and Patriotism Under Fire. And when uh, I was interviewed about, about uh, my book, uh, I saw in a lot of the articles that were written um, that you know, they, they, they sought a comment from the US military on, on my account, on, on my, on my uh, publication. In, in which, for the most part, the military said that they 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 would not they would not comment on. Uh, I remember one 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 quote was they would not comment on on any one individual's uh, personal experience at Guantanamo, something like that, right? So they they uh, they already had an egg on their face for for arresting me and falsely accusing of me and um, look, looking pretty bad in that process. Uh, uh, so in terms of, of 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 pushback, in terms of you know, trying to come after me from w- what I further exposed in, in my writings, in my, pu- in my publication. Um, you know, I, I, w- I was ready. I was ready to, to speak out. But you, you, uh, we also talked a little bit about uh, uh, the term whistleblower. Uh, I actually don't consider myself a whistleblower because I, I didn't see myself as as the guy on the inside, a military officer who would who ran to the media and then exposed things that weren't supposed to be exposed. I actually uh, exposed information to my chain of command in the way that we as military officers are trained to do, to use the chain of command. And that's what I did. My immediate supervisors, the lieutenant colonel and the colonel who who headed up the detention side of the operation, actually, uh, in my view, valued the input that I was giving them. You know the the reports of abuse uh, of prisoners, the mistreatment, the religious persecution was all important for them to to analyze and understand, because they would often end up causing riots and demonstrations within the prison cell blocks, which would then could potentially put their guards at risk, right? So they they valued that information. Uh, that I brought to them, and actually, I believe they valued my contribution, and that was reflected in the officer evaluation report that I received uh, while I was at Guantanamo. It was it was stellar. It was actually the best officer evaluation report I had ever received in my entire military career. It was an indication for me that after my my uh, Guantanamo assignment, that my career was 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 quickly 
going to be elevated. And that was dated two days before I would be arrested and thrown in prison. Wow. So it, 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 it didn't make sense. Um, but on the other side of the operation, the intelligence gathering side of the operation, you know, they, they uh, in hindsight, uh, felt that I was hampering what they were doing with the interrogations that involved torture and abuse. And thought that by my uh, advocating for the rights uh, and humane treatment of prisoners was hampering or an obstacle to what, what they were doing. And, and they surely wanted me wanted me out of Guantanamo. Yeah. And before we move on, I do want to give you an opportunity to describe for our listeners a little bit of what some of that abuse, and particularly, I think people would be interested to hear about the religious persecution that you that you witnessed and that you heard directly from these men that, that they were experiencing. Uh, yeah, so, you, I mean, you had uh, latent uh, abuses in which prisoners were beaten up, uh, uh, they were hit, uh, they were... Uh, Times when I saw prisoners who had returned from their interrogation sessions had returned with broken teeth, bruises, and those things. So that that's just on the physical side. Uh, I saw guards also abuse prisoners, um, physically dragging prisoners through the gravel. Uh, you know, when they're escorting prisoners to a place, um, you know, these prisoners are shackled at the, the wrist, the waist, the ankles. Um, they got they got. Uh, these chains around their ankles so the steps they, they can take are only like four inches right so they can't really move that fast so when these guards are trying to escort them and want to move faster they just literally drag them you know drag them through, through you know, across the ground and gravel uh, and, and, and that kind of thing uh, a lot of the complaints that I received as a chaplain from the prisoners were of course uh, complaints about religious persecution um you had, you had basic, general, simple things like guards who would disturb them while they were in prayer, or they would turn the water off right before prayer time so the Muslim prisoners couldn't wash before prayer. Uh, so when Muslims pray five times a day, prior to praying, they, they ritually wash, spiritually uh, wash before the prayer. So the guards would often know that prayer time was coming, so they would turn the water off, things like that. Um, uh, throw stones while they are actually in prayer, you know, stop down uh, the corridors of the, of the cell blocks. Those are the, those are the simple type things. But then things were also much more extreme, like in the interrogation sessions, there were reports of uh, sexual humiliation, sexual harassment. You had female interrogators who would perform these scandalous lap dances on the prisoner. Um, there have been reports of, 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 of female interrogators who were, who were even willing to, you know, take their own clothes off and, and scannily, you know, do a lap dance naked on, on, on a prisoner, knowing that many of these young Muslim men who come from these orthodox, uh, conservative societies have no, don't have that, uh, physical contact with, with, in, with any women, right? So, um, you know, they thought... These interrogators thought that this would help them gain information from them. You had the issue of the desecration of the Quran. So the Quran, which is considered to be the, the, the literal words of God, was, was desecrated in many situations in Guantanamo, whether it was thrown on the floor, stepped on, uh, kicked, sat on during these interrogation sessions. Uh, you had a controversy uh, that was reported in Newsweek magazine where... Uh, it was said that the Quran was thrown in the toilet down in Guantanamo. Um, I heard from prisoners uh, how the guards had thrown some of the Qurans in, in the waste buckets that they had in Camp X-Ray. So when I referred to Camp X-Ray earlier as, as these fence-like cages, they didn't have toilets, so they had a, a, a steel bucket in each cage, which prisoners used to, to defecate and urinate in. So sometimes prisoners said that guards would take the, cor the, the, the crayons that they had and toss them into those buckets, you know, as it, as it was a piece of trash or a piece of waste. Right? So, you know, and, and all of those things led to these riots and, and demonstrations. And, 
disturbances within the cell blocks, making making everything just chaotic for not only the guards but also for the, the intelligence intelligence gathering process. Um, there was one particular incident which was I, I found quite horrifying, where a a translator actually described for me uh, a process where they took a prisoner into a, an interrogation room and they had prepped the, the, the interrogation room with 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 uh, painting uh, a satanic star, the satanic symbol on the floor of that interrogation room uh, that represents Satan. And then they would force the prisoner to prostrate, like in the form of the Islamic prayer, in the center of that satanic starlight symbol, uh, screaming at the prisoner that Satan is your God now, right? um, knowing that they, they, they were trying to break the prisoner of his, of his faith in one God. So th these are the types of religious persecutions uh, that I would I would hear about from prisoners and and also from translators who work the inter the, the interrogation sessions. Thank you, James. And as we're wrapping up, I've just been wondering, like, what what is the the role of you know good people of faith, people of goodwill who want to, like you did, decide to go provide a service um, for other people and then just working through the, the established uh, structures of power through the military, whatever, um, through the established organizations that there are, what does it mean to try to do good and work through these same organizations that are not only doing harm, but and not just ignorantly doing harm, but actively trying to stop the people who, who bring things up. Like how how can you, if you're a chaplain, you know you're you're obviously someone who is serving God through the uh, through whatever institution you're working for. Um, how? How do you even how do you even do that when it's like you raise an issue to the institution that you're working for and then they try and they persecute you as well? Yeah, and you know, um, I often got the question. Uh, I, I, I'm often asked, like, uh, what do I think about American Muslims today who serve the U.S. military or might want to join the U.S. military? What what, what would I advise them? You know, based on my experience and based how. Um, I was discriminated against within the ranks, but I, I am someone who's a who's a, a firm believer that, like in these very large uh, institutions, these gov especially government institutions, that in order for them to change, it's it's not going to change unless the people within it change it, right? So, if all American Muslims said, "Oh, we're, we're not joining the U.S. military," then you know, rights were well, religious minorities in the military will, will never come about unless there are religious minorities within the system that are that are willing to stand up and be strong, have a backbone, and and fight for those rights. So, uh, and, and one example, for example, one, for, and and for example, when I was in the military, uh, the highest ranking Muslim chaplain at the time was a was a major. Uh, I myself was a captain, so a major is just one rank above me. And I actually had hopes that one day that maybe I'll be the first lieutenant colonel, to, Muslim chaplain, to reach the rank of lieutenant colonel. That was, you know, one of my, my, my career hopes and dreams that, that, that maybe I could accomplish that. But today there's actually a Muslim chaplain, uh, an African-American Muslim who serves in the U.S. military, who's reached the rank of full bird colonel and is actually a division chaplain. So he's chaplain of an entire uh, division, uh, and the division has several brigades, and several brigade, and a brigade has several battalions, right? And you know, at my, my captain level, I was only a battalion chaplain, but but today we have a chaplain who, a Muslim chaplain who is uh, serving at at the, at the division level, right? So, you know, in order for that to have occurred, you know, you had to have chaplains like myself and others who were willing to to speak out. And and uh, put 
put our necks out on the line, you know, put our, put our neck on the, you know, on the line, uh, in order for that others in, in the future will, will, will have those opportunities. Um, there were other chaplains who served in Guantanamo, uh, prior to, to, to me getting there that were, that were Muslim, uh, for very short periods. Uh, the first, very first Muslim chaplain who served there, he was discriminated against, and they tried to bring a case against him, saying that, you know, he potentially tried to contact one of the families of the prisoners, and that was outside the uh, what what was allowed by the military, and they 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 tried to come after him. Um, there was another Muslim chaplain who was there from from the Air Force right before I got there, and and uh, he was there for about three months, but. But he spoke up and against against the command and as to what will, you know some of the things that were going on there. So you have you know in order for change to to come into play, it has to come from, it has to come from within. And, and and I'm someone who, you know, would advise someone who might want to join the U.S. military now as as a, as an American Muslim, is to at least educate themselves first as to what they're getting involved in and to to recognize their own strengths and whether or not they have that uh, internal, you know, fortitude and strength to deal with some of these issues that they're going to be faced with as a, a religious minority in the U.S. military, who's going to have the courage to at sometimes speak out against the command, right, uh, when it's wrong. Um, interestingly enough, you know, Chaplains, by doctrine, are supposed to advise their commander on on four areas: religion, morale, morals, and ethics. So, as a chaplain, I'm supposed to advise my commander on morals and ethics. But what I found in my fellow chaplains, they would often neglect that role, that responsibility to advise the commander on morals and ethics because they didn't want to be seen as someone who was, was being critical of their commander, who writes their officer evaluation report of, of whether or not they're being morally or eth 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 uh, ethically sound. Like you might, you know, it, it might, it might be, it's your responsibility sometimes to say, Hey, sir, Hey ma'am, uh, you might want to think twice about whether we should be doing it, doing this in this way or, or whatnot. And, and risk being being looked at by your commander as being uh, someone who's who's saying to 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 him or her that 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 they're not being ethical or moral, right? And then that could you know come back to haunt that chaplain in, in his evaluation, right? But you know we're we're supposed to be working for as a chaplain for you know a higher power and not. Not be concerned about, uh, uh, you know, those kinds of things, and be primarily concerned with what's right and wrong, right? Uh, so, so, so it's interesting in, in, in that sense. Uh, but yeah. Well, we are coming up on over it. Well, no, we've already passed an hour of recording, so I don't want to keep you too long. Um, before we head out, James, is there anything else that you want to add? Any any plugs that you want to make? Um, if you have any social media, yeah. yeah, no, no plugs, but uh, but yeah, just uh, in terms of some closing, in terms of uh, some just closing words for people who are still concerned about the Guantanamo issue. Uh, you know, things that they can do uh, to try and help get this place closed, um, sort of like a, a call to action, so to speak. Uh, uh, one one would be you know, if President Biden has a plan to close Guantanamo to, to support that plan, and I I think uh, any plan that, that that deals with Guantanamo issues today should in, uh, should include uh, President Biden reappointing a special envoy for Guantanamo. President Obama had one, and that special envoy was very instrumental in helping. Uh, coordinate the release of prisoners with those other countries that were accepting them. When President Trump was elected, he closed that office down. And so the whole process kind of came to a halt. Uh, 
since President Biden has gotten elected, he hasn't reopened that office or hasn't reappointed someone to that position to facilitate the further release of prisoners uh, who are cleared. And out of the 37 prisoners that are still there, 20 of them are cleared for release, unanimously approved by our intelligence agencies that these people are okay to be released, that they're no threat to, to the United States any, any longer, right? But in order to get that process going, we need you know that special envoy uh, appointed, and 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 then of course, um, it, it's really incumbent for people to to stand up for justice, uh, and to support anything that 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 uh, ensures that that the the that human rights are advocated for on, on every level at, at, at a place, especially like one time. Well, thank you, James. I'm, I'm so grateful for your advocacy and your bravery and your willingness to share your story. Um, and, you know, not just your story, but the stories of the, the men in there who haven't yet been able to to share their story. I would again uh, recommend everyone look into the stories of the men who have been able to to release books and art and, and uh, statements. Um, and, and even, and even uh, uh, this past year, uh, a movie that won some awards in Hollywood was called The Mauritanian. Um, yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very telling story of, of one particular prisoner and, and and you get you get uh, you get a good idea you get a good idea of 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 his experience being being tortured. Yeah. So to anyone listening, I I, I recommend. I, I think the work for a lot of us, unfortunately, is to educate ourselves because this issue has been disappeared from the popular discourse. And so I, I recommend everyone to to look into the issue of Guantanamo and U.S. torture. Um, look into it more, do your research, and then realize that you need to be joining us to to advocate for a closure to Guantanamo and to an end to all, all, all torture and similar practices that are, are still going on. Um, so yeah, th thanks for tuning in. Emiliano, do you have a, a sign-off for us? Um, no, it's just been a, it's been a pleasure um, speaking with you, and yeah, I'm always I'm always ready to share my experience so that other people will learn. Thank you so much, James. Thank um, you. Where where can we find your book? Yeah, you can st it's still available on Amazon. It's called For God and Country: Faith and Patriotism Under Fire. Okay, all right. Thank you so much, James, and uh, keep up the good fight. Thank you.